Have you ever met a child who seemed destined for a certain kind of life work? Raphael Jovin was that kind of youngster. When things started growing on old food in our compost or in our waste, I thought it was amazing. And so even when I was a, a little kid, I would bring that in and take it under my bed and I would give them names. They had names like Slimy Peter or Fuzzy Bob. I'm not making this up. <laughs> they were my friends and they would just grow. And they are really beautiful if you actually take the time to look. They have all kinds of colors and all kinds of fuzzy textures and they were amazing. Of course, my mom was not super excited about the idea that I was growing you know, stanky things under my bed. But it was fascinating to me, and I just didn't really know where to put this. <laughs> and the consequences for growing this stuff under your bed? I did a lot of dishes. And when I mean a lot, I did a lot of dishes. <laughs> that's, the real, that's the real answer. <laughs> no, his destiny was not to become a professional kitchen manager or dishwasher. A key to understanding his life's trajectory can be found in those very first words you heard him say. When things started growing, I thought it was amazing. And he's not just talking about mold or fungus under his bed. I've always been really good at growing things. It was something I was interested in. And so I just was happy when I could find my little corner where I could do my growing things long before I studied anything, I was a real truant. I didn't go to school very much. I was a child actor. I didn't spend really a whole year of school until I was 13, but growing things I did even before then. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I'd like you to meet a kindred spirit. At least he struck me that way from the very moment I met him. And I really hope you share something with him too, this sense of wonder about things that grow. I can't say that I share the childhood actor thing. Raphael Jovin grew up in a bohemian family of thespians. Their whole world revolved around the stage and camera. He would become the first in his family to go to college, and today he's chief scientist and co-founder of Brilliant Planet, an international firm that's using algae to address several facets of climate change. And in the years subsequent to his boyhood fixation on mold and growing plants, He's gone practically nuts about algae. In fact, if his wife wants to get his attention, she sends an email with a subject line, algae, algae, algae. And she knows that's bait enough to get him to read whatever she has in store. Given his background as an actor, it's not at all surprising that his lifelong passion for whatever grows, from mold and algae to plants and trees, was dramatically kick-started by a movie he saw late one night on TV. I learned English at the time in local Bavarian station, played original language movies without much subtitles or very poor subtitles, put it that way. And I was fascinated because there was a whole nother world that was inaccessible to me. So I learned English watching these foreign language movies. And sort of Teenage Rebellion came along, and there was this scene in this fantastic movie with Jimmy Stewart called You Can't Take It With You. And he was so eager to persuade this beautiful bohemian woman that she should take some interest in him. And he starts talking about studying photosynthesis and the little green thing in plants that makes all the energy that we burn. And I heard Jimmy Stewart deliver these lines that are actually not in the original play, but the geniuses who made the movies, you know, they put it in the script. There's a tiny little engine in the green of this grass and in the green of the trees that has the mysterious gift of being able to take energy from the rays of the sun and store it up. You see, that's how the heat and power and coal and oil and wood is stored up. I just thought, wait, hang on a minute, that makes so much sense. You know, that's where the energy comes from. The sun goes into the plants and then we use it. That is like so meaningful somehow. I just, it clicked with me. And it was a very strange moment for me because, you know, I was not supposed to watch television by myself late at night. 
you can take it with you is a really nice movie. But the fact is, is I probably shouldn't have been watching it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I just thought there was something there. So I knew that I needed to do something about that. And I didn't really know how. I didn't know anybody who had ever gone to university at that point, right? So there was this weird, strange call that I knew that I needed to do something about. We thought if if we could find the secret of all those millions of little engines in this green stuff, we could we can make big ones. And then we could take all the power we could ever need right from the sun's rays, you see? Well, that's wonderful. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we worked on it and worked. And, you know, day and night, we got so excited we forgot to sleep. If, if we make just one little discovery, well, walk on air for days. We'll come back to Raphael's personal life with plants in just a moment. But first, let me tell you what he's up to as chief scientist for that company called Brilliant Planet. You've no doubt heard of inventors trying to devise new ways to pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to help cool off our warming planet. One of the wildest innovations I've read about is a machine that makes diamonds out of air. Not thin air. On the contrary, air that is thick with CO2. That's the diamond stuff. And then there are these giant fans, kind of like vacuums that filter CO2 out of the air. And there are mechanical tree-like thingies, which have CO2-absorbing leaf-like thingies. There's even this concept of building power plants on the seafloor so that any CO2 produced by them can be quickly sequestered under the Earth's surface below the sea. But Brilliant Planet goes after carbon in what they call a nature-based way, by growing algae. Lots and lots of algae. The idea is to mimic what the ocean is already doing, but they do it on land, where they can easily manage the algae that's capturing carbon. And we're going to get into the particulars today of what they do with all that algae once they've grown it. But if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I really want to underscore just how completely smitten Raphael is by plant forms and sunlight and energy and everything related to that. There's a brilliant scene from his earlier life that really ought to clinch it. So as you were growing, getting older, eventually there comes a point in life where you get married. And and I just want to hear, this is too good to be true, that you determined that for your wedding, uh, you were still interested enough in plants for some reason at that point. I don't know how much education you'd had by the time of your wedding, but you made your own wedding jacket out of some kind of organic material. (laughs) So my wife was an artist. And I was the biologist. And my wife came from a very traditional family. And I wanted to show something about me in our wedding. Her sisters had dressed her up beautifully in flowers. She was beautiful, spectacular. And we wanted to have a simple, authentic wedding that was ours. So I had seeded wool jackets with grass seeds and experimented with fescue and rye and the different kind of grass seeds to see which worked best. Within the actual wool fibers, you planted seeds? In the actual fabric, I used spray glue to attach seeds and then germinated them. And Marcus, I promise you, it was a spectacular thing to do. Because when the grass is fresh and it's green and it's sprouting, it's so vibrant. And it was the best fur coat that anybody has ever had. It was beautiful. It didn't just quite go the way I wanted it to. Before we get to the the actual wedding, you had to time this out. You had to know what the germination time would be for the seeds to sprout. You had to know how long it was going to grow. Had Had you thought that all through? Of course, of course. So this was a, you know, I planned this for many, many weeks. Uh, Grass, if you do it right, can grow and sprout in sort of less than three weeks. And it was just the right length and the right size. And it was very bushy and strong. It was really good. I I would definitely do this again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For what occasion would you do it again? I don't know grandchildren I'll do whatever comes I'll, I'm happy to do this again <laughs> okay so the wedding day it rains oh my gosh so my father-in-law is very traditional 
he knew me, so he was a bit suspicious. <laughs> so he was looking around for what I was doing, and I had hidden the grass jacket in the side of a sort of grass berm, and it was growing very happily there. And he didn't find it, so I was super thrilled. I had my big moment. And then it just poured rain. It was bucketing rain. It was so much rain that... So the moment comes and it's time and I put on my grass jacket and it's weighing about, I'm not exaggerating, it's weighing, you know, 65, 70 kilos at this point. It is so heavy. I can barely sort of heft it on <laughs> and it's sodden with water and I'm standing there and it's draining and raining water. My pants are soaked. I'm standing in this huge puddle and my young brother-in-law is laughing himself to pieces and it's very so silly and there's my beautiful wife with all the flowers in her white outfit it's just perfect and i'm just this like rain cascade but it was a really special moment you know if that scene were to happen today it would get thousands of views in a highlight reel of classic wedding fails but unlike Tony Kirby, that character in You Can't Take It With You, played by Jimmy Stewart. Raphael has never let go of his passion for plant life and photosynthesis. In fact, before we even started recording our conversation, Raphael wanted more than anything else to give me a quick virtual walkabout to see all the plants he's growing on his rooftop. We had video going, so he picked up his laptop with its camera to carry me out onto the terrace of his London apartment, a gorgeous urban garden, and over the tops of his prized plants. I could spy a few recognizable London landmarks in the background. I haven't got any video for you, but here's just a bit of what he showed me. Do you mind if I just show you for 10 seconds? Here's yeah. one banana plant uh, and a bunch of avocados yeah. and palm trees in the background. Outside are my lavender uh -huh. plants, rosemary. On the other side, my cherry tree just blossoming, even though it's really cold. And I've got a whole bunch of trees from New Hampshire here that don't exist anywhere else, actually. Uh, these are New Hampshire apple trees. The point is, I couldn't be in more central London. I mean, if you drew an X on London, here is uh, St. Paul's in the background, <laughs> and on the other side is the Shard. I couldn't be more central. Now that you know a little bit about Raphael, about his persistence and his passion, his somewhat eccentric manner, his desire to discover or invent, we need to see if he can persuade us that we too should care as much as he does, yes, about fungus, about plants, yes, about photosynthesis, but especially about algae and the role it might play in addressing the biggest environmental concern of our time. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Let's get in now to the whole issue of photosynthesis. You have described uh, this uh, photosynthesis, this phenomenon, with a word that I, I know you probably don't believe in, but it's very descriptive. It's a, a bit of a superlative. You say it's kind of magic. I totally believe in that. It is magic. So since the very beginning of life on Earth, there has been this ability of life to absorb sunlight and turn it into something practical and useful in our world. Even that original moment of photosynthesis, before all the modern organisms that we know today evolve, is preserved in us, in us humans. So in our eyes, the same thing that happens when we see light is what started four and a half billion years ago, when Earth formed. And to me, that is magic. And I find that still truly inspiring. We work every day, all the time, to try to understand that process better. That doesn't make it less magic. Which explains why he dared use the word miracle in the subtitle of his book, Light to Life, The Miracle of Photosynthesis and How It Can Save the Planet. Raphael Jovine's enthusiasm for photosynthesis brackets in anything and everything associated with it, not omitting the origin story of life forms. So when our planet started, it was a big, sulfurous, 
brown, stinky mess. And these little organisms grew and collected sunlight and it took all these weird chemicals in and they made them into something useful. Raphael takes great pains to remind people how all the green we see on Earth was not a given. The story of photosynthesis he likes to tell, the magic of it all, if you will, is that from those primordial microorganisms doing that original photosynthesis, well, the magic is that our expansive diversity of life forms should ever have come about or continue with life creating life and more life and more and more evolving into the glorious planet we now have. It's a powerful story, and the power of photosynthesis, he believes, is also essential to the task before us now. If we can grow more plants, we can rebalance the challenges that we're experiencing today. Most of our current conversations about countering widespread desertification or about regreening the planet or fighting climate change, well, these conversations circle for the most part around trees, trees and more trees. Something big is missing in this equation, though, and Raphael is keen on opening our eyes to the big story we're often missing. Most of the planet, of course, is covered in water, and this is where his vision about algae fits in. He has a remarkably optimistic perspective, and naturally, this omission of ours, well, that's where I really wanted to draw him out. Most people thinking of photosynthesis default very quickly to images of things growing on land. We think about trees and shrubs and grasses, land, plants. Could you help us appreciate a little bit more just the range of photosynthetic activity among organisms that might not even be on land? The ocean continues to surprise us. With all the satellite work, we realized that much more photosynthesis was happening in the ocean than we expected. I grew up hearing that, say, the Amazon jungle, those are the lungs of the earth. That's what's providing us with most of our oxygen. And you say, maybe we shouldn't be so fast to buy that. Look, the Amazon is super important, and we must have the Amazon. But the ocean, the ocean has deeply embedded wisdom. And what I mean by that is, is that the ocean has many different mechanisms for responding to the changes that we are experiencing today. There are absolutely miraculous organisms out there. It is amazing stuff. Even us scientists have gone around the world telling everybody that there are limits to the system and that we must be very careful about how we balance the planet. And that's important and that's necessary. But there are always surprises in terms of how resilient the planet is and how capable it is to handle all these different scenarios. And what we are trying to do ourselves is to find a way to take advantage of these different microorganisms for the purpose of fixing the planet. So how is Brilliant Planet using these miraculous organisms from the sea to fix the planet? Algae, algae, algae. A number of years ago, Raphael observed that many of his fellow scientists had focused their efforts on growing it in the lab, where it's not only difficult to set the right conditions for growth, but where the systems are very expensive. But away from a lab, right out in the open, algae can thrive without as much artificial human manipulation, especially in a hot and sunny place, if you can just give it enough water. This led him to experimentation in places like South Africa and later in Morocco, where Brilliant Planet now has built the world's largest algae growth pond. It's a facility that draws water from the adjacent sea. It's all about optimizing conditions outside for rapid algal growth. Six football fields of water intentionally pushing nature toward more frequent, more productive algal blooms or harvests, if you will. So we learned from the aquaculturists, shrimp farmers, people who grow aquaculture ponds, have figured out how to use empty land really well. So for example, which is, was a surprise to me then, in Saudi Arabia, there is a shrimp farm on the Red Sea side that is an enormous area where people build ponds very cheaply to grow these marine organisms 
And it was a way of bringing the ocean on land to increase the capacity to grow things. Water is pumped from a mile or two out in the ocean because that water is rich in nutrients. And it takes just a single beaker of the right algae to multiply in that water and fill their biggest pond. When I say right algae, I mean that they select a type that's going to grow most robustly in their ponds. And inch for inch, it turns out that algae is better than trees at carbon capture. And here's why. The entire surface area of algae is involved in photosynthesis. With a tree, well, that is an organism that has to grow trunks and branches and roots and twigs. But it's only the leaves that do the photosynthesis. The pumps for this operate on solar power. There's ample sunshine in a place like Morocco. And also, growing algae de-acidifies the water that it's grown in. That water is returned to the sea in better shape than when it arrived. After the algae is fully mature, it is harvested and it's dried right there in the hot desert sun. And then two things can happen. It can be made into food products. Raphael will tell us more about that. Or it can be buried in the sand as part of a carbon sequestration program. In Morocco, with a lot of sand, it only needs to be buried a couple of meters deep to be secure in place. That is carbon content removed from the carbon cycle. We have found a way of taking advantage of a completely nature-based solution. It is a very authentic, original way that the algae grow naturally along desert coastlines. Deserts because there's a lot of sunlight, there's a lot of ocean along these desert coastlines, and there's a lot of empty land that is not culturally or economically productive. It's empty land. And specifically, you're talking about places like South Africa, where I know you've worked, Oman, Morocco. Correct, but it's many more places. This can be Namibia, Chile, Baja California, the Sea of Cortez in Mexico, Australia. It can be many places where there is empty land, a lot of seawater, and a lot of sunlight. And the reason why I say that is all those places have their own organisms that are perfect for that environment. And they grow perfectly in that space. And they have had many, 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 many years to figure out how to optimize the sort of biological activity. And what we do is we bring that ocean activity on land. And the real secret to our company is that we figured out how to make that sort of seasonal bloom, the sort of spring bloom, the moment when the algae grow and there's this efflorescence. We figured out how to do that year round instead of just for two, three weeks. You know, the other thing I have to think about is that an algal bloom, in my experience, is kind of a, people think of that as a dangerous, terrible thing. There are these moments when things go wrong, of course. Harmful algal blooms is when there's river runoff or lakes that are polluted with too many nutrients coming off of various activities. And then they can be toxic, they can cause diarrhea, they can cause all kinds of problems. But there's really a very small number, actually. It's about 20 organisms that are bad, and hundreds of thousands are actually very constructive and feed things. Just to give you a sense of perspective, there's five times more animal life in the ocean than there is on land. So the ocean is really productive, and they're all eating these natural, non-harmful blooms. And this is what we wanted to do, was to give those natural blooms that happen in the ocean that are at the bottom of a food chain and bring them on land and give them a chance, a space to grow where they normally couldn't get to. So let's talk about the end result of this kind of an operation. You've got the ponds, you're generating algal blooms, and then where does the stuff go? We can produce vegan egg white substitutes that are really good from an amino acid profile and from a health perspective. And they cook and behave just like proper egg white when you bake and when you fry it in a pan. And it just is perfect from a fluffing of your loaf point of view. We can produce pigments that are coloring your margarine and your butter. And we can also produce the leavening agents and the emulsifiers that make mayonnaise, for example, without any strange chemicals. All of these things are original compounds that come out of nature in the first place. 
And going back just briefly to the idea of protein from algae, I'm, I'm imagining that there's a, a more efficient uh, correlation between the inputs and what you get at, at the end. Because when I think about protein production and, and uh, animals eating grains and, and grasses and what have you, is there less waste along the way making the protein this way? All the protein that is in fish and in salmon originally comes from algae. So what we can do is we can make that original protein before it is concentrated in fish and extract it from the algae. And it's a much, much more efficient way of producing really healthy food. Especially compared with, say, land-based uh, cattle raising. There's a place for land-based cattle raising. Cattle can be very constructive and actually improve the environment done right. And yes, it is also much better than chopping down rainforests to make fodder for cattle. And so what we got really good at is pulling CO2 out of the air, CO2 that everybody's mad at these days, deacidifying seawater, removing the acid from the seawater, and growing those algae for the purpose of both making food as well as trapping carbon. And what we are now doing is we're taking that residual that's left over after we make food and we put it into the ground, where a million years from now, there will be oil again. Jimmy Stewart's character, Tony Kirby, he never got a chance to go quite this far. But it's a remarkable vision Raphael Jovin has, and I think it's rife with possibility. Thousands of thinkers, scientists, even entrepreneurs around the world are wondering what can or should be done to combat global warming, climate change. And among these, I think Raphael Jovin exhibits a unique optimism. I find it heartening, which is perhaps why investors have responded so favorably to him. Toyota Ventures, for example, is one of two partners that have invested $12 million in Brilliant Planet. The firm expects to build a commercial site in the next few years, capable of removing 40,000 tons of CO2 from the atmosphere on an annual basis, all with the help of oceanic algae. Brilliant Planet is pursuing just one of many approaches to harnessing the natural powers of the ocean. Rafael Jovin knows about these. He acknowledges them and talks about them in his book, Light to Life, The Miracle of Photosynthesis and How It Can Save the Planet. There's much more going on here than just trapping carbon and hiding it away. There's also some significant rethinking of our conventional food system. Protein from algae is probably destined to become an important food source, which brings me to our next guest. In just a moment, we're going to meet a former fisherman from Newfoundland who made a dramatic transition in his career from being a traditional fisherman to a whole new way of life as an ocean farmer. Like Rafael Jovin, he is looking to the ocean as a source of food, but most particularly, he is looking to change the way we eat. Eat like a fish, he advises. That's the title of his book. Now, honestly, eating like a fish, that kind of turns my stomach, but he too has been looking further down the food chain in the ocean for nature-based solutions to some of the pressing and urgent needs we have in feeding and healing the world. Luckily, there are just you know, a whole generation of chefs that specialize in making disgusting stuff delicious, right? That's what, that's what like, they're put <laughs> on earth to do, is to create this climate cuisine. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Bren Smith wrote a book called Eat Like a Fish, which, if you think about it, is just what Raphael Jovine is encouraging by making vegan egg whites and mayonnaise emulsifiers from algae. Eating algae is the link there. Smith is working in our hemisphere off the coast of North America as an ocean farmer. His crops are kelp and shellfish. And his farm is tiny, the equivalent of only 20 acres. And besides requiring no land, his farming requires very few inputs by comparison to other kinds of farming, on a land farm, be it in California or Washington, in Florida or Maine, you put a whole lot in before you ever get anything out. I asked Bren Smith what he, as an ocean farmer, has to put in. I mean, I wish this was more complicated. Honestly, it makes me seem a lot smarter. But the, <laughs> the key is, as soon as you 
look at the ocean as a unique agricultural space and be like, okay, what does it make sense to grow? Let's ask that. Let's ask the ocean that. It says, why don't you grow things that don't swim away and you don't have to feed? And as soon as you make that leap, you realize there are 10,000 plants in the ocean. Potentially, we could grow hundreds of kinds of shellfish, and none of them require feed, fertilizer, uh, of course, no fresh water, no land. And so just making it hands down the most sustainable form of food production. I was born and raised in Newfoundland, Canada, this little um, fishing village, most eastern point in all of North America. You know, the houses, greens, yellow, oranges, uh, painted with leftover boat paint, right? And my heroes were just fishermen. They owned their own boat. They had self-directed lives. They succeeded and failed on their own terms. And they had this pride of feeding their country. And like that's what I wanted. I didn't want to be a businessman or an accountant or anything. What I wanted to be is I wanted one of those jobs that people had that they wrote songs about, right? The coal workers, the steel workers, the farmers, the fishermen, these sort of soul-filling jobs. As he headed into his adult years pursuing his dream of fishing the seas, Bren Smith became eyewitness to the death of the Canadian cod industry. This was back in the early 1990s. It was a disaster that struck at the very soul of a human culture and society with an economy that hinged almost entirely on the health and obviously on the the sheer size of the Atlantic cod fishery. So I dropped out of high school, 14, and fished the globe And then the cod stocks crashed back in Newfoundland and 30,000 people thrown out of work overnight, right? It was the biggest layoff in Canadian history. And it is amazing to see an economy built up over 100 years suddenly disappear because of ecological collapse. And it's just, you know, fishermen as hungry ghosts. I remember there were a line going down the street, people waiting for cod because you weren't allowed to even throw a line off the docks at that point after the fishery closed. And everybody's buying Russian cod, you know, it looked like a funeral march. To keep any kind of faith with the sea that he loved as a reliable place for him to have a viable career, Bren Smith turned to oysters. And his work as an oyster man ultimately led him to establish Thimble Island Ocean Farm. I spoke with him last summer and wanted to bring you some of that conversation because just like Raphael Chauvin, Smith is also harnessing the power of marine photosynthesis. And he does this to address what he sees as some significant woes with our food system. He believes so strongly in his solutions that he has become, well, a beacon, a willing, eager beacon for other would-be ocean farmers. They come to him for training on his farm, and then they turn around and become his eventual competitors, and he is perfectly fine by that because he thinks the world needs a whole lot more of what he can offer in the way of wisdom and know-how as an ocean farmer. That is part of the role he has as co-executive director of the nonprofit called Greenwave. But things did not come easily for ocean farmer Brent Smith, at least not initially. I was a terrible oysterman. I killed millions of oysters. I ran like a death camp for shellfish when I started because I was a fisherman, right? Like I hunt and kill things. My neurons fired in a different way and I found it really boring and I just didn't, like it just was a weird transition. But Over time, I developed a blue thumb. I hope you heard that. He actually used the expression blue thumb. And the oysters taught me a lot. You can grow things that not only have zero inputs, but actually breathe life back into the ocean. So an oyster filters 50 gallons of water a day, pulling nitrogen out of the water column. And too much nitrogen from land-based farms, actually, is where quite a bit of it comes from, creates dead zones in the ocean. And then I started building... My farm around there, there's sort of a side story where I got my oyster farm got wiped out by Hurricane Sandy and Irene. And I had to start to rethink. I'd been growing on the bottom of the seafloor up until then. But I turned my farm into a vertical farm using that whole water column and started growing as many different regenerative species as possible. So now what I have is think of these anchors down on the seafloor and then vertical ropes up to the surface to buoys and then horizontal ropes between those anchor systems. Think of a scaffolding system just made out of rope. And from there, 
I grow my kelp vertically downwards. I grow scallops and mussels. I've got my oysters and clams. And every species has a different sweet spot in that water. And the benefit is my farm's smaller than it used to be, but I grow more food. I used to have 100 acres, and now I'm down to 20 acres because I'm using that whole water column and I'm you know circulating different species through year-round. Can you go to Zillow and find that there's watery real estate for sale? I mean, how do you, how do you get the rights to do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, it was a, a mystery to me, you know. What happens for us is you either lease from uh, the town or the state or you can lease in federal waters. And you don't own that water. The ocean is, you know, it's the commons and we want to keep it that way. What you own is the right to grow shellfish and seaweed in this 20 acres. So it's almost like a process, right? Besides that, anybody can fish, swim, kayak, you know, commercially fish on your farm. And that was hard for me to get my head around at first, right? I was like, no, no, this is my farm. And, but no, it's a community space. And that's allowed for a lot of this social license. Like people being like, oh, okay, we like this because it's, we're not blocked out. We can come swim and dive through your kelp forest. And um, that's allowed a lot of farms to pop up. There's 192 permitted farms in the country. We're up to about 1,000 acres in the U.S., and it's just growing by a factor of like 10 at this point year to year. You, you don't have people who are messing with your vertical columns there? That if they can be boating and swimming and diving, and what, do they get tangled up in the buoys and ropes? Well, I still got a shotgun on my boat. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I'm still a fisherman, right? Uh, if they do, there's consequences. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say uh, that's no, tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it is. It is. There, I've never had to pull it out. People don't go with big sailboats and keels and things like that. Just think of a farm and it's set up in rows, right? So you can really see it and understand it when you come up to it. So we just haven't had any problem with uh, with folks, um, you know, messing with the lines. I actually, early on, I had a tr- little bit of trouble with fishermen cutting my lines, but that's fisherman to fisherman. You know, I had to sort that out myself. Well, um, I, I don't even want to, want to get into that conflict. It's, <laughs> it's just part of the culture you come from and you yeah. get it and that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does kelp really grow downward? And Yeah. In the wild, it secures to you know rocks and things like that. It's holdfast to the bottom and grows up. One, what we do is we grow it from the surface. The kelp grows vertically downwards because what we want is a the right mix of sunlight, just like a sequoia, right, um, and nutrients. So we actually get better growth rates when we're growing the surface downward. The other benefit is let's take California. Ninety-one percent of uh, California kelp forests in the north are gone. A huge part of that is the urchin population destroying and eating because they've become so climate resilient and they're called zombie urchins and they're just, just they've just destroyed massive amounts of kelp forests. But if you grow vertically downward, the little zombie urchins can't get to the kelp. They just stare up at it. And then also because we don't grow the kelp on the bottom, we don't disturb the bottom or the reef systems that's on the seafloor. You know, there's there's no way I'm going to be doing this. You realize I'm, I'm talking to you from a landlocked state, the state of Utah, you know, <laughs> yeah. and we don't have kelp here. But I might be yeah. eating kelp one day from off my grocery shelves. Uh, maybe I already am and just don't know it. There was this whole lost culinary history of seaweeds in Western cuisine. So, you know, it was a Scottish and Irish bar snack. It was fermented by Italians. Uh, it was cooked into scones and breads. And anybody who's lived next to the ocean, we think of it as an Asian cuisine, understandably, but anyone who's li- lived near the ocean, it was part of what they ate. There was something called the Kelp Highway that went along the entire coast of South America and migration patterns. They found seaweeds all the you know, hundreds of miles inland in there in folks, um, you know, in archaeological digs. On the docks of San Diego in the early 1900s, there were 1,500 workers producing 50 different kelp products. Um, And one of those was a fertilizer for Midwest farms. The San Diego kelp industry provided fertilizer for 700 farms in the Midwest because think about all those nutrients are in the ocean that land-based farmers need, right? The micronutrients, the nitrogen, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, soy and all sorts of stuff has pushed seaweed off the plate. Um, and so we need to get it back in the center. And luckily, there are just, you know, a whole generation of chefs that specialize in making sort of disgusting stuff delicious, right? That's what, that's what like, they're put on <laughs> earth to do is to create this climate cuisine. Like, 
it's more what the earth, the land, and the ocean can provide, and then we need to make it delicious and beautiful food, right? So we've been spent the last decade working with chefs, and one of the first delicious dishes came out of Brooks Headley, who was a pastry chef who switched to getting people to eat vegetables at his restaurant by making them unhealthy. Right? Brilliant strategy, right? And um, uh, and so he took the kelp and and turned it into noodles and did barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. We actually have this recipe in the book. And the brilliance about that is you get the heat of the barbecue sauce, that roundness of the um, parsnips and that crunch of, of the breadcrumbs. And it just, people didn't even blink at it. You know, it's just delicious. We came out with a line of kelp uh, curries and chutneys, bread and butter pickles. Um, the other odd story I found out when I was looking at the book is McDonald's used to have a seaweed burger in the 1990s. For five years, it was called the McLean sam- Sandwich. They didn't mention seaweed, but it became the official burger of the National Basketball Association. So, like, there is, you know, there is a history here that we yeah. can mine, and we have a skill set in America right now where food is, um, you know, there's just such creativity in that sector. What's the connection between processing kelp, uh, harvesting it, process tobacco farms, old tobacco farms? There's oh some, yeah, what's yeah. that? Yeah, the trouble with kelp, like, there are huge benefits, and it's great. That one of the big problems is that when it gets out of the water, it starts to degrade. It doesn't like oxygen, basically. So you need to stabilize it, get it in powdered form, dried, flaked form, or cooked and frozen within eight hours of it coming out of the water. And our harvest, you know, you 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 got to you got a one month harvest, you got to put a quarter million pounds of kelp and you got to get it processed, right? Huge challenge. So we've always been searching and we do it indoors and things like that, but it was very pricey. Um, then COVID hit right when it was harvest season. So we couldn't do our indoor processing. And so one of the folks at Greenwave, our market development person, found the tobacco barns here in Connecticut. There used to be quite a large tobacco industry and they were all empty. Um, and it turns out the kelp acts like tobacco. We brought it, hung it. The workers in the farm, it was a farm from the 1600s that had been growing um, tobacco and now was sort of you know struggling of what to do, do next and tried flowers and things like that. But the workers saw the kelp, were like, oh, yeah, this is easy. It like, literally looks like uh, tobacco. And so you know, I, I don't think this makes for a great shirt, but you know, I want to be like, kelp is not the new kale, it's the new tobacco. <laughs> and it drove down processing costs 90% for us. So this is one of the, you know, there's so much misery in the COVID years. And then, but then I think we all also all see these sort of, you know, out of crisis comes innovation. And this is an example of it. You're saying that the interventions that a farmer undertakes on land, there's observation and there's techniques, there's tricks of the trade. There's also a vigilance over time of watching, watching yes. what's happening. And, and all of those things are part of your tasks. Yeah, you said that so well. That's right. Because, you know, say I just finished up my kelp harvest and the water temps are beginning to, like, this is just the moment where the ecosystem wakes up, temps pop above 50. And what happens then is all this biofouling, all these things come and eat my kelp, which is good for the ecosystem, but uh, I need to get it out before it gets completely biofouled. So what I do is I'm able to, the farm's designed in a way where I sink the lines down lower in the water column to store that kelp while it's waiting for harvest, right? So all these little granular pieces, and this is what makes a farmer good farmer. And this is why GreenWave was so important. People are like, oh, why'd you start a nonprofit? And my take was, this: in, we have to do 10,000 years of learning in the ocean to, to get to where we are on with land-based agriculture. Like, we need to learn so fast. And so what I really needed and I wanted to create was a, net, a knowledge network across the country of everybody who's out in the water trying to farm these different species and a place to share that knowledge so we could just get better and better and better. And it really is, it's sort of, it's very granular stuff and it's fun. I mean, that's what makes it fun. You're trying to hack this and, and figure out these little pieces and really trust your eyes and, and, uh, uh, and sort of the feel of what's going on in the water. I can hear in your voice that it's fun because you, you strike me as the type of person who wants to know how things work uh, than to somehow monetize it. <laughs> I just said it. Yeah. You, is it profitable to be doing this? This is why I'm not, I don't think of myself again as an environmentalist in a very traditional sense. I mean, we're now in the same boat in the climate sector with all the traditional environmentalists who want to save the birds, bees, and bears, it just turns out that to save the birds, bees, and bears, um, we got to grow a a lot of food and grow it in a way that keeps the planet alive. Like if we just 
take the whole earth and set it aside as a conservation zone, those creatures are going to um, uh, die because climate, you know, the, the, the climate, climate crisis is off and running and we need to use human ingenuity to draw down that, that impact. It's the daily level of this, but there's also something else that I think draws people to, we have a waiting list right now of 8,000 people uh, for our programming at GreenWave just in the U.S. Uh, it's just stunning. And then requests to start farms in over 100 countries. And you kind of wonder why that is. And part of it is it's a blank slate out there from an agricultural perspective. And we can actually build something that we're proud of. You know, like, let's take all those lessons from land-based agriculture, the good and the bad. Let's take all those lessons from industrial aquaculture and do food right. Like, let's make sure that young farmers have access to leases. Let's make sure that seed is not privatized. Let's make sure that this is a profitable industry because this can't be subsidized the whole time. This, I, my goal is to make a living on a living planet, not just to live on a living planet, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I want to die in my boat. I want to hand a farm over to my daughter, and that's my goal. I mean, it, profitability is key. When I hear about regenerative practices in gardening or farming on, on land, they're talking about the kind of sustainability where you're not depleting what is there. Your little space of land or sea will be better because somehow yes. you're infusing stuff back into the system. It's You know what I'm talking about? So, so this yep. raises the question, what are you doing yep. for the ocean? What are you doing for yep. other species in the ocean by, by this kind of farming? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, sustainability in our climate change too mod is too modest a goal, right? Sustainability is fundamentally about taking, say, a T-shirt and making it better, right? Less of an impact. Instead, what we need to do is do regenerative things that breathe life back into the ecosystem, right? So as we're going to work feeding people, we're leaving the planet in a better place, not just lowering our impact. So and that's the beautiful thing about these crops. It's not just zero input. You know, we have that, which is sort of sustainability, right? Uh, but then the regenerative piece, I mean, kelp is the sequoia of the sea. It, it, it captures five times more carbon than land-based plants. The, the, both the kelp and the shellfish filter nitrogen out of the water column. The farms function as artificial reef systems to give all these places for fish and, and birds and everybody to come eat, hide, and thrive. And that both makes it a good business model because there's so little overhead in terms of inputs and such an important solution in the era of climate change. You know, both of those at the same time. That's ocean farmer Bren Smith, author of Eat Like a Fish. I encourage you to head to our website, byuradio.org, search for Ocean Farming, and you can hear the entire interview with Bren Smith in our archives. Back now to my conversation with Raphael Jovin from Brilliant Planet to see the, the really big picture of what we've been talking about this hour. Now, the successes or occasional failures of these kinds of operations, I'm very hopeful, you know, that things are going to go well and that there will be traction where people will be invested in this. At, at, at the same time, I have to say that what a corporation is able to do versus what a lone citizen is able to do, that's a very important issue to me. Thank you. Every single one of us can do a lot. Of course, we can be really responsible and recycle and throw away things in a responsible way and reduce our energy consumption. All of those are necessary. We all need to do that to find a new balance. Absolutely. And we can improve how we behave in our local community. I live in the middle of a city. There is no space around me that is original nature. And yet, I can grow many things. My son used to go to the local market, which has been a vegetable market for a thousand years. It's the center of London. And he used to get the offcuts, the tails of the carrot tops and the, you know, the little bits that are thrown away when the vendors sell their beautiful produce. And he would compost it here right on our terrace in the center of London. And again, my wife wasn't always appreciative of the mess he made in the process. He's not so different from his dad. And the point is, we now grow in that compost. Apple trees, cherry trees, bananas, 
several palm trees, which shouldn't be here in London, lots of rosemary and lots of lavender. And to my complete shock and surprise, right here in the dead center of London, we have lots of bees. The bees love the lavender. We are eating all the potatoes that my son has grown in our flower pots from little potatoes that he seeded without telling us, I might add. And they've sprouted and multiplied and they're growing and it's great. You can go to the supermarket, the lemon seeds in your lemon, the cherry pit in your cherry. They have all the core wisdom built into them. They know what to do. All you need to do is give them a chance. Cities can be daunting and challenging and and rough. And it's nice to come home and see something grow. It's good for mental health. Around the planet, if you go to the worst slums in the world, people are growing things and it makes them feel connected. And it's a good thing. And I, I think this kind of regenerative activity is really important for people to find the rhythm where you connect with the sunlight and you water things on a regular basis and you feel that confidence that things will get better and grow again is really a powerful force. Which is that we, we've talked about photosynthesis. We began with a story from your childhood about growing things and, and getting your own experience of, of working with, well, I guess, mold and fungi to begin with, and eventually seeds. And you just mentioned seeds again a moment ago. I'm guessing that, well, something you, you, you say, you've written, is that every seed carries the instructions to save our world. And my guess is those instructions in large measure, although there's a lot going on in DNA, uh, those instructions include uh, how to capture and harvest light and be productive with it. So seeds and photosynthesis, you can't tell the one story, I think, without the other. Absolutely. You're completely right. And as far as I'm concerned, we are blessed every day when we go to the supermarket and we buy our vegetables. We're given this resource that is so powerful to change the planet. And the more we grow, the better the planet gets. Raphael Jovine, author of Light to Life, The Miracle of Photosynthesis and How It Can Save the Planet. This episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Tenery Taylor, Jenea Tanner, and Daniel McDonald. Our thanks to Parker Schmidt, Mitchell Towsley, members of the sound design team here at BYU Broadcasting, I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.